0: North Carolina is one of the most beautiful states in the Union. North Carolina has the greatest variety of trees than any other state in the Union. I lived there for 10 years, part of the time on the eastern area toward the coast, a part of the time in the west, and some in the Piedmont in the Research Triangle. So I fell in love in North Carolina, beach, mountains. Man, the trees are unbelievable. They have every variety of oak, white oak, black oak, blackjack oak, water oak. They have sassafras trees, they have beech, they have maple, they have all kinds of trees. And in the fall, ladies and gentlemen, in the fall, about 5.2 million people go to North Carolina to see the fabulous trees that are there. It takes in about a billion dollars of income in three months. Beautiful, magnificent, colorful. We call them uh, tree peepers or leaf pickers when they would come and I lived there. Nothing else like it in America, until 2015. A hurricane called Irene hit the coast, 125 mile an hour winds, but what happened also, more than any time we know in history, the salt water went way inland, way inland, And it got down underground and got down in the roots of this beautiful, beautiful forest. And now you have what they call of NASA that's recently photographed it, a ghost forest. A ghost forest, 21,000 acres, dead trees, gray, white, The beautiful, beautiful forest was gone. That's what is happening in the United States today. We have a hurricane flowing through our land, and just like that salt water, Begin to hurt the very roots of North Carolina. We're seeing today the basic fundamental principles upon which our nation was built the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the bylaws, the freedoms being totally thrown aside. It seems like increasingly every day, every day as the alien poison begins to destroy the foundation of our land. Also what's happening in the west in different areas according to NASA photos. The plates, the tectonic plates are beginning to move and they also move underneath and it destroys, it kills that which is above it. So we see a hurricane sweeping through our land by any honest, open, objective observation. And there are many of them. Let me just touch on one that relates directly to Corinth because we're studying 1 Corinthians and we're seeing the parallels that happen in the first century are so parallel to what we see happening in our nation and in our world in the 21st century. And nothing could be clearer than the hurricane we're experiencing today that happened in Corinth. Suddenly the Romans control the city of Corinth. And remember it was an international city. People came all over the world for prosperity and for pleasure. It was exploding, affluent, and the Romans came and they taxed, taxed, taxed those Corinthians like you would not believe. And the military that was there made sure that everybody paid their exorbitant taxes, and as the affluency increased from international people coming, doing all kinds of work, all kinds of enterprises, all kinds of building, all kinds of construction, all kinds of trade. The taxes went up, the military force became greater, and suddenly we see Corinth. The very roots of that city begin to die, and it's a sad, sad story what happened in ancient Corinth economically. What is happening today to us? Anybody who went to the first grade, stay with me, or anybody who's ever studied five minutes of economics know one thing for sure. Inflation is simply this. You know this, let me remind you of this. You have a dollar today with a value of the dollar going down with more dollars hitting the market where you could buy something for a dollar today in a week, it'll cost $2 or $10 or a $100 for the same item. Therefore, everything anybody has here in property, land, or money, or anything that's tangible in measuring your net worth and my net worth. As inflation comes, everything you save, every security you have begins to go down in value. That is an absolute law of economics. Now, what's happening to us? We're spending trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars, and evidently there's more and more and more to come Of money we do not have we're a nation that's overwhelmed with debt the relationship of our debt to our gross national product is getting totally out of balance and therefore what's the answer print money give more money away make more people dependent upon the government for the basic essentials of life now by the way This isn't a new thing. Remember what I told you Cicero said? He was very right. He said, if we do not study history and learn from history, we'll remain babies our entire life. Ladies and gentlemen, that ancient philosopher spoke absolutely clear truth. And we keep printing money, printing money. Look at history. What happened a few years ago, almost in Japan? Boy, they got on the verge. They're still recovering, by the way. Uh, What happened in Venezuela? Print money, print money. And what happens as a result of hyperinflation and it goes on and on and on, what happens? First of all, the value of everything goes down. The second place, you can't get things on the shelves. You go to buy basic essentials in the grocery store. Do you remember what happens when we have a hurricane around here? You know, go to the grocery store. What's that? Nothing's on the shelves you can't buy. Some have gone in there and bought all the toilet paper, and we go in there. What happened to it? We didn't know there would be any more. Go to these countries that have experienced hyper-impression. You find the same exact same thing. Yesterday, somebody who has family in Venezuela communicated with me and said they can't get basic medicines, they can't get basic essentials. Why? A company that, and that is in bankrupt or a country that is in bankrupt can't do business because they have nothing to trade with. Nobody knows they will stand behind that which they commit themselves to. You got it? This is where we are. Inflation, inflation, lose the basic essentials. Well, I'm not gonna give the total answer to all of this because it is beyond my pay scale, but I'll tell you some things that are happening, I think, that are bringing this hurricane on us and there's a lot of blame to go around. How many in here, just for curiosity, pay federal income tax? Would you lift your hand high? Hands down. Now, wouldn't you think that the big, affluent, profitable corporations in America would help us with all of this economic crisis in which we find ourselves? Let me give you some facts. First of all, let's just look at, uh, there's plenty of, let's look at Amazon. That's a good company. Amazon in the last three years, by the way, of all places, this is from the New York Times, so it may or may not be accurate, but I think it is. (laughs) In the past three years, Amazon three years, 2018, 2020, brought in $44.7 billion. That's more zeros than most of us can write. Their tax rate was 4.3%. Huh, that seems a little strange to me. General Motors, oh, we know about them. They haven't paid U.S. income taxes for years and don't know when they'll pay any. GE doesn't pay, Ford rarely does. Both get fat refunds. Here's why. This is what the government is gonna pay to these three or four corporations in the next few years. U.S. Steel, they're gonna give $303 million to. General Motors, they're gonna give $104 million to. Amazon, they're gonna give $129 million to. Goodyear is gonna get $15 million from this government. Now, let's just look at some of the Fortune 500 companies. Now, here's a whole list of some of the most affluent countries, companies, And these, they published enough information to show they were very profitable in 218, 219, 220. And these companies, let me list some of them, there are plenty, Duke Energy, FedEx, ever heard of these people, Uh, Nike, uh, there's a whole list of them there, Advance, Mirror Devices, uh, I mean, there's a whole list of companies, corporations we know on these pages, and and they were plenty profitable. Here's one made 13.9 billion, another made 1.2, one, one made, and they go right down, four million, nine million, billion, I mean, six billion, I can't say the word. And these companies, let me read it to you. Had a total effective federal income tax rate of zero, no taxes in the past three years. And you go back, you'll find it more than three years. Now, we know how this happens. And, and you were in a, a board meeting or a CEO of a company or a corporation had stock. This is how they avoid it. R&D, research and development. Going green, they get benefit for that. Uh, investment in equipment, stock options. But there's something else in here why so many of the major, 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 major corporations don't pay taxes. They get all these benefits, but there's another factor. Who writes the tax laws for America? Anybody want to guess? It's the Congress. Oh, okay. So on top of that, here's a corporation who have all the lobbyists who are there and they hire literally hundreds and hundreds of accountants, CPAs, experts on the law, and they are assigned with this corporation paying the least that it can, and I don't think any of these corporations have broken the law. They have paid taxes according to the law, and nobody wants to pay more than they should pay, but these corporations have a different deal working, folks. They have these other built-in benefits also They have little writers and little fine print on bills that they write in law and they give special credit and overlook and write tax benefits for that which they are doing and our elective representatives, they write in these little exceptions to keep these big corporations from paying money on the fabulous income that they have coming in. Well, why do they do that? I wanna make a wild guess. They give to their campaign through pots, through pools, through all sorts of mechanisms, so I can be reelected again. And therefore, there's this other side. And so we have our legislative people, not all of them, get in bed with the giant corporations and the end result is you have billions and billions of profits made as we do business with them in our current economy and they don't pay taxes on the profits. That's virtually wide scale activity in the United States of America today. I've talked to some people who've been on major boards for many years, some international corporations, some state corporations, and the few that I have asked, I brought up the question. I said, look, these corporations I don't believe have done anything illegally, but they've made a big mistake in my judgment morally. And I asked some board members, not many, and some have sat on big, big, big boards for years and years and years. I asked the question, or one voluntarily told me, you know, in all our board meetings, hundreds of them, we never discussed morality. It didn't come up. Ethics. Oh, maybe to comply with the law, didn't come up. You see what happens to a country or a nation? We pay federal taxes. These who are the most powerful have tremendous influence but you've got big, big, big corporations in bed with the elected establishment And what's going to happen in the very near future? Everybody's tax rate in this room is going to go up. Flash. No laws are broken. But I think a moral law, and this is a part of what is driving us, as it has in countries throughout history, to becoming Socialistic. What happened in Corinth? Same thing. Same thing. Different situation, a little different entree, a little different power structure. Rome was a power structure. Here's Corinth, and therefore Corinth today strategically located. Corinth in an operating hub of that whole part of the world. Let's look at what Corinth looks, at, looks like right now, today. You want to see a picture of it? Here he is. You say, well, that'll never happen here. I wish I were a gambling man and you'd take that bet. We stay on this path. We stay on this path, ladies and gentlemen. And you may be looking at I tragically pray that there'll be a reversal, a revival, a coming to God and coming to Christ all across the board from, from, from Washington to Seattle to Portland to New Orleans to Las Vegas, that's the only hope, to Houston, that's the only hope we have, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. And in the situation in Corinth, the apostle Paul sees what is happening in the culture of Corinth, and the culture of Corinth had bled over with its salt water, and all of a sudden the church was becoming more like the culture than the culture was becoming like the church. And folks, we must not let that happen in the body of Christ because the deadly poison will come in and destroy the foundation upon which we stand. Paul speaks to this and says, well, what do God-fearing people do in this SOS moment in the history of Corinth? It applies what we are to do in this SOS moment in the United States of America. Here's what Paul said to do. He starts off at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 with the last verse. He says, talk about the Christians in the church at Corinth. We have the mind of Christ. Whoa, did you get that? Now Paul is about to deal with deep moral questions in the life of the people who are in the church at Corinth. He is going to come at them as clear as zigzag lightning naming people, chapter, verse, with how low the church had sunk and moved away from their Christian moorings, he's gonna deal with it. But first of all, he does something else. He says, I want you to remember who you are and I want you to remember what you have. And that's where we have to start. Before we get all out in the super negativity, let's as Christians remember who we are and remember what we have. And Paul says, you've got the mind of Christ. Listen, these are, we dealt with this in chapter one and chapter two, he ends up, we've got the mind of Christ. Gosh, if you and I have the mind of Christ and we're Christians, that's really something. But having the mind of Christ and using and developing the mind and the mentality of Christ is two different things, is it not? Having the mind of Christ means that as Christians, we have great potential. Potential means you haven't done it yet. That's what potential. Oh, they've got great potential. Okay, let's see some of it. We can have the mind of Christ and not trigger that mind in, we'll discover through the power of the Holy Spirit. When they said you have the mind of Christ. So Paul is really challenging and thrilling the church before he gets down to deal with deep, deep moral problems in the church, and those moral problems came from the culture in which the church found itself. Sound familiar? So you have the mind of cry, chapter three, he says, and I, brethren, brothers and sisters, could not speak to you as spiritual men, and by the way, the word men there means mankind, men and women. Don't get caught up in all the gender silliness. But as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. He said, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you're not able to receive it. What's Paul saying? Let's go back and understand this, it's important. There's three words translated flesh or fleshly there in these first verses. Paul is saying, you were flesh, means you were human, And I came to you and I fed you milk. That's what we feed the babies, okay? We feed milk. We don't say, boy, you wanna have a steak tonight? Eh, No, we feed them milk. It's okay. And what was milk? Milk was simply Christ came and died for your sin. That's milk, that's salvation, that's the first step, that's receiving Christ, praying the prayer. My Savior, that's milk. But he says, I want to feed you meat, but you're still like a natural person, like someone who's never known Christ. That's the way you're living. But I fed you milk then, but four plus years have gone by. He's writing back to the church. He said, you still on a milk basis. And that means Christ saved us in a situation where he died for our sins. Meat would be. I saved you from your sin. Follow me, very subtle. Listen, milk, salvation, I died for your sin. Meat, now you begin to move from your sin. The sin appetite is taken away. You're grown up. See the difference? They're still in kindergarten and they need to move on up through adolescence and become mature, but they stayed right there all this time. And then he goes on and talks about meat. He said, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Baby's arm, even today you're not able. He said, you are still fleshly, another Greek word is used. Flesh, okay, when you baby. Fleshly means you're still thinking like a child. You're living, the word is a carnal life, for since there is, how do you know you're fleshly? There is jealousy, there is strife, and you are fleshly, you're not, are you walking like mere men and there's division. And when he says, I am of Paul, another I am of Apollos, are you not like normal men? And he says, what then is Apollos? Verse five, and what is Paul? Servants to whom you believe, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. What's this all about? He's saying you're still children and you should grow up. The proof that you're still children is all the debating, the jealousy, the fractions. So I like Paul and maybe Paul, remember? Maybe Paul was a Roman, maybe he had a different color skin, you think? And then Peter, another one of their heroes, maybe he was Jewish. He would think a different color, maybe skin and background and language. And he said, here's somebody else. Here's Apollos. He was Egyptian. And man, there's still another flavor. And he said, you're still partial. You've divided the church into groups. I like this one. I like that one. And he says, no, this is not how the church operates. And we'll see that. So we understand where we are. We have the mind of Christ, potential but we still in the low, low levels, we just come to Christ, we have matured and grown up in our faith, in our walk with the Lord and we stay back here. And Paul says, you need to be up here and I prove to you that you're still a child because you're divided, you're jealous and there's strife among you. That's the beginning. And then Paul does something, speaking to the church there, and he's speaking to all of us, so we can get it. We see pictures. You know, Jesus taught in parables. He would tell a story, and it would would illustrate a profound truth. That was his primary method of teaching, was it not? And so Jesus said, I want to tell you a story, and then Paul uses the same picture here, not in parable, but he does it with a metaphor. A metaphor means this is like that. So we get it. This is like that, and now he's telling that church, as he's telling us in 21st century, you know who you are? Told them what they had, the mind of Christ. He said, now going me tell you who you are. And look at these verses. Look at verse six. He said, I planted Apollos water, but God was calling the growth. And we're going to discover he's saying, we are God's field, F-I-E-L-D. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who calls the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. He's saying, we are God's field. Now remember where we are, we're in a culture, and we're in a church, and the church is becoming more like the culture, and here we are in all of our divisions, all of our strife, we're mimicking the thinking of the world. And by the way, all the way through this section, Paul is talking about this is wise and this is foolish. Remember, this is wisdom. This is foolish. This, this is right. This is wrong. This is God's wisdom. This is man's wisdom. And he's contracting all of this. And now he said, guess what? All of you in the church, you're God's field. You're God's field. And he said, Paul said, I came along and, and I planted the truth of God, the good news. He said, Apollos came along, he watered. He watered the field, you and I, challenged to grow up, and, and Paul is saying, look, it doesn't matter who plants and who waters, it is God who calls the growth, the maturity. It's God who's behind all this. A seed is the Word of God is planted there, but God takes and explodes it. So we're God's field. I thought about the parable in, in Matthew 13, Remember? Jesus got out of a boat, and he looked up in the side of the mountain, and he saw, I'm sure, somebody sowing seed. And Jesus looked up there and said, let me tell you something. We are God's field, and the seed of truth, how to live the life in this moment in time, is sowed. But look how people respond to it. By the way, when I was in seminary, one of the first things we did in class early on They gave us this very scripture, my professor, Virgil Moorfield, who later became a missionary to Italy incidentally, and Virgil Moorfield said, I want you to read this and tell us what it means. I'd never written a sermon in my life. So this is the very scripture. He said, what's going on here? By the way, Jesus tells this story And then later on in the chapter, he tells those who are listening exactly what he's talking about. Isn't that interesting? He said, don't miss this. So it must be very important. He said, scattering seed, and that's the seed of truth, what happens to the seed? He said, some of it falls in the road. (laughs) He said, in the road, that's people who don't get it. Ever talk to somebody, you talk about God, Christ, church, and he goes, they don't get it. They just miss it. It's it's blurred out. They don't want any part of it. Not interested, boring, silly, crazy, ridiculous. Then they tell you, well, I know somebody who's a Christian. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's like the road. The truth is just stamped out. It's not interested. It doesn't apply. Don't understand it. He said, you sow other seed out there. It falls on stones, stony ground. What kind of happens that when the truth comes to somebody? We've seen it. Here is a rock, it's covered by soil, and somebody comes to Christ. Man, I have a new life, a new beginning, I'm forgiven, I'm excited about God and Christ the church, and they're running around here on fire for God, and we say, isn't this wonderful? But the roots of their profession hit the rock. They just flame out, burn up, lose their passion. And he appalled is saying that happens to us. We get excited and bang, shallow. Doesn't grow down anywhere, rocky soil. Then he said, there's another thing, the truth of God goes out and, and, and the word goes into thorns, into all kinds of thorns. And, and the truth of God doesn't grow up in a life like that because those thorns were so wrapped up in the world. Ben, I've seen a lot of people come to Christ in couples, and they have children, and unfortunately become successful, which is a tragic thing in a lot of lives. And then they get involved in this and that and travel and activities and games and sports and education and all the homecoming of all the colleges and universities and families. And all of a sudden, all the concerns of life looking after all the stuff that surrounds you and surround me and it's thorny ground and the Word of God never develops and permeates all those aspects of life, see? We got too many things. A multi-zillionaire has to cover all these things, my goodness gracious, I don't have time. Oh, God in is over here, <laughs> you know, you got to hatch, match and dispatch folks, remember? Hatch when the baby is born, church wanna be a Matches when you get married, all oh, the church comes in. And dispatch when you die, it's a good time to call the church in then, too, by the way. So we got all that group, and the thorns just choke out God's true revelation. But then he says, there's the fourth kind of ground. And by the way, all of us could mostly identify with those three pretty much, but he said, when the word of God and truth comes into life and they receive Christ, and that ground is fertile, it is watered, and it grows, and you see maturity. In other words, about one-fourth, right? 25% make it, right? Really understand it and rejoice in it. What Paul is saying, he said, we're all God's field. We're God's garden. It's an agricultural picture. What happens to the truth of God when it comes to your life and my life. That's the bottom line. And then he goes on and gives us another metaphor, and it's, it's beautiful. He said, we're not only God's field, but let me tell you what else we are. Look at it there in chapter 9, chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. He says, we're God's building. We're not only a field, we're a building. He said, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, he's saying... I'm an architect, Paul says, I'm a a contractor. He said, I laid the foundation and another is building on it for each man must be careful how he builds on it. No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. In other words, we can say, Jesus is our foundation, okay? It's that rock upon we stand. What is that foundation? It is on Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ, We are, if we are on his foundation, really, you know what that means? Everything in your life and my life runs through the grid, the grid of Jesus. We got the mind of Christ. We did to develop and begin to think about eternal things, and it spills over into our practical life, and we're on that foundation, and everything, the grid, goes through Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. And then Paul just says, here's the foundation. It's Jesus Christ. He said, now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, or hay, or stubble, he says, each man's work, verse 13, will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed by fire. Who? And the fire itself will test the quality of each person's work. If any man's work which has been built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. What's this all about? So here we are, we receive Christ. We make Christ the grid of our life, it is our foundation. And then the foundation is important, isn't it? But what's more important? What do you put on top of that foundation? That's you and that's me. What kind of materials do we use? The foundation determines how high the building can go. A foundation on Jesus Christ, man, that building can go whew, all the way to heaven, right? <laughs> it's We first built Jane Elder building. We, we built a foundation for three stories. Some of us in the meeting said, let's build a foundation in case we wanna put three more stories on it in the future. A Lot of them in the building committee said, oh no, we'll never need to do that. Some of us prevailed, we built a foundation for three more stories and guess what? Later on, we put those three stories up because we needed it. But you got a foundation of Jesus Christ, the sky, heaven is the limit. So you got a foundation for really a life that means something. And you put a, a chicken coop on top of it. What's going to last? Gold, silver, precious stones. What, what are we building with? Apollos put up a wall and Paul put down the floor and Peter put on the seat. What, 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 what is gold, silver, precious I don't know. That's what's going to last forever. We leave this earth, what's going to last? When we graduate, what's going to be there? Gold, silver, precious stones. Gold, I thought of the golden rule, many things. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Christ gives us the power to do that. And that's gold, isn't it? That's going to be here after we leave this earth. What does that really mean, the golden rule? It means whatever you need, that's what you give. I need somebody to comfort me. Comfort somebody. I need somebody to listen to me. Listen to somebody. I need somebody to care for me, care for somebody. What you need is that which you give. Bread on the water. Works every time. So that's gold. That's going to last as we leave this earth with the practice of the golden rule. What is silver? By the way, silver is a valuable commodity. Silver reflects light better than anything I know. Silver is a conductor of power, of energy. So if we reflect something of the image of Christ as He is building in us to other people, that's the silver, isn't it? And in that silver, it conducts the life, the mentality of Christ to others. That's silver, that's going to last. And what about precious stones? Put precious stones in fire, what happens to a diamond? It gets brighter anything that's on it. True of most precious stone, emerald, sapphire. My goodness, they they just catch fire when the fire goes out. It enhances. they stand. That's what's gonna be here, these intangible things as we leave this earth. But what's gonna be burned up? The wood that we built on top of our life. What would be wood? I looked up the word wood there. It had to do with a stock. It's the kind of wood that, you know, you put your head in, you're bound. I think a lot of people in the church live their life on the basis, Christianity is all of this that I do not do. I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't do that, and I don't do this, and that defines Christianity. That's wood. Silly, not biblical. And then what is the hay? Wood, hay. Hay is what you would take, and you would fill in cracks, wouldn't you? You know, if, if you got a crack, you can take some hay, put some mud with it, fill in the cracks. It'll work for a while. It's temporary. It keeps the cold, the wind out. Hey, what happens when fire comes to hay? <laughs> burns up. We fill in the cracks. I've got a problem in my life, and we put a Band-Aid on it. It's not healed before God, his grace. We put a Band-Aid. It burns up. What about, what about stubble that's there? Wood, hay, stubble. That, that's something else, another kind of hay. Y- you get in a, a barn, and we have somebody here who cleans a horse barn every morning. I'm looking at them, and when you clean it all up, there's still a stench, so you may put some hay down to cover it up, right? Bring a little better order in there, right? But when fire comes, the hay burns up, The stubble burns up, the wood burns up, it doesn't last. That's temporary panacea kind of things we do even in our Christian life. And he says, you go to heaven, but it's such as by fire, by the hair of your chinny chin chin, using biblical terminology. And then he says, not only are you these two things, You're God's building, you're God's field. He says an amazing thing here. Verse 16, do you not know that you are a temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. We are the very temple of God and the picture there is in the holy of holies in the synagogue where the Shekinah dwells. When we receive Christ, we become temples. Holy, different, satisfied, set aside, unique. Holy, a temple. We're not only a field. We're not only a building. But we're a temple, a place where God dwells. What happens? Quickly. Everybody here, we are... Body, spirit, and soul. Body, soma, this is our body. Not going too fast for anybody. This is our body. This is our body. And we have a spirit, pneuma, Greek word, and that is in Genesis, uh, the Hebrew word roah. and here is a body, and God breathed into the nostrils of mankind, of human beings, the breath, the spirit. So everybody has a body, and as a spirit, right, whether you're in Christ or not. And the soul, many definitions are used for it, even biblically, but I think it covers the whole of it. It's all of it, it's the mind, it's, it's, it's the uniqueness of you. Just think about it, nobody has ever lived on the earth that's like you or like me and nobody will ever live on the earth. that's like you and like me, it is our uniqueness. We're uniquely made in the very image of God himself. That's our soulish part of us. When we receive Jesus Christ, now that spirit, which everybody has, is invaded by Christ and the Holy Spirit, and now there's the Holy Spirit indwelling in you and in me, and that's the part as we grow and mature in our faith because we're on that foundation. So there is that spiritual part that is renewed, and that is the soul that will last forever. This body won't, but thank God, we'll get a brand-new resurrected body. The prototype was the resurrected body of Jesus Christ, and our soul will reside there forever because we've received Christ, and he's redeemed us, and he's taken that human spirit, and he's made it into a sanctuary a temple for God Almighty. See, Paul is telling them, this is what you have, and this is who you are, and then he moves on, and he does a very fabulous thing here at the end. And I'll skip over some verses. In verse 30 he said, the Lord knows the reasoning of the wise, that they're useless. But let no man boast for, look at verse 21, chapter three. Paul says, for all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you because you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. You need anything? This whole thing belongs to you. I can go to a mountain in Colorado and look over there, and I don't own a foot of dirt in Colorado, but I look out there and say, look at the beauty. Man, that belongs to me. That belongs to me. All belongs to you. The present, the future, it's all ours in Christ because we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Man, what an inheritance we have. Therefore in the church as the culture begins to bleed into much of the church, we don't want to become a ghost forest and we will not if we understand who we are and what we have. And then there's a very tremendous verse at this time is so timely for you and for me. It's found in 1 Peter chapter number to verse, listen. This present value, listen carefully, then is for you who believe, family of faith. But for those who disbelieve, outside, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and the stone of stumbling, a rock of defense, offense. But they stumble because they're disobedient. To the word, the seed that has been sown. And to this doom, they were also appointed. Now, here's the verse. Listen carefully. This is the reason we don't have any divisions in the true body of Christ, the church. We don't have, this is the affluent, this is the non affluent. This is the super educated, this is the barely educated. This is those who speak this language and those who speak this language. This is those who are this color and this is those who are not this color. And we don't have any of that in the body of Christ. And Peter says it so clearly. He said, you are a brand new race. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Folks, that's who the body of Christ is. This is what we have. This is what we can do and understand that we're all just bricks, bricks in the church. The church is the very body of Christ in the 21st century and we are all in the church in Christ. We are a brand new race. You got it? Don't let anybody mess with it because that's a fundamental basis upon the way the body of Christ can penetrate the culture and stand for the word of truth when everybody seems to entertain big, blatant lies as the hurricanes flow upon us. Paul said to Corinth, this is what you do. This is how you live. And God's saying the same thing to all of us right now in this moment of his history.